Thank you for listening to this week's message from North Shore Christian Church. For more information about North Shore, please visit northshorechristian.org. Good morning, North Shore. My name is Sanjay Merchant. I'm a teaching pastor here. I'm also a professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, if we haven't met, but I've met many of you, and it's really good to be back and to see you guys again. We're starting a new teaching series in the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah. Jonah, further than you think, um, here's what we're going to do for the next few weeks. We are going to focus on this book. Maybe you know the story of Jonah. When I think of Jonah, I don't know about you guys, um, when I think of Jonah, I think of the VeggieTales movie. I have, I have kids that age, and I teach students at Moody Bible Institute who are the age of my kids, and so... If I say Jonah was a prophet, they'd all break out in song, you know, they know how the song goes. Um, That's what I think of. The book of Jonah is a massive adventure. You may know the story very well, you may be familiar with the story, you might not know the story at all. We're going to summarize it today as we kick off this series, but although the book is this massive adventure, it's a short little book. It's a very short little book. It's surprisingly short. I knew it was short, and as I was preparing for this series and thinking about things and praying and studying, I was reminded of just how short it is. You could actually read it multiple times in one day if you wanted to. So here's what we're doing. For the next few weeks, through this teaching series on Jonah, as we typically do, our community, we are fellowshipping around this piece of scripture. That's what we're doing. We're fellowshipping. So I just want to encourage everybody, I'm going to be doing this, read it multiple times, maybe multiple times in a day, maybe multiple times in a week, but it is short enough for you to ingest pretty easily in one sitting. And why do we do that? We're going to meditate on it. We're going to think deeply about it. We are going to challenge one another with some of the things that we read. We're going to ask questions of one another. We're going to encourage one another around the book of Jonah. And we allow the Holy Spirit then to speak to us through this one piece of Scripture as we meditate on it together. That's what fellowship is about. That deepens fellowship. And we become a community more deeply as we center on a single piece of Scripture. And we quietly allow the Holy Spirit to do what he wants to do in and through that. So that's the plan. Does that make sense? And so let's be committed to that. Um, We want to change Everett. And we want to change the world. We want to declare the name of Jesus Christ, but we don't have to do anything heroic. That's the really good news. We don't have to do anything heroic at all. All we have to do is is meditate on this piece of scripture. If you need a a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We've got them ready. Uh, If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Jonah or in your Bible app, but just put your hand up as the Bibles come forth. And again, as we meditate on this together, this is very important. I often think of this way in this way too, that Maybe we have to do something heroic. Maybe I have to come up with some really good religious insights in my teaching and, and, and publish some uh, really impressive book that's culture-changing. Um, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. That's, that's my wildest dream, and, and we, differ, we have different wild dreams that we might have in our own lives. The impact that we want to have on our families. Quiet, still, patient, Little obedience is all that God requires, and so a little act of obedience, again, for us would be to be reading this text together, challenging one another with it, spending the next couple weeks doing it, and see what the Lord does. And the promise is, and and I've seen this and you've experienced this too, over time what the Lord does is he brings peace into our lives, into our families, into our households, strengthens our relationships, reveals his son to us. We come to more deeply and intimately know and see Jesus Christ, deepens our joy. 
and then uh, the name of God is, is, is proclaimed. And so this little act of obedience, again, the book of Jonah, all right? So that's the plan. Okay. Here's how Jonah starts. I'm just going to read the first two verses. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So this is what we're going to do. Let's look at a little bit of the context. I want to um, share a little bit of the historical background, a little bit of the contextual background in the Bible, so that we have a deeper understanding, a sort of foundation on which to meditate on Jonah and understand it and really get the most out of this series and the most out of what God wants to do in our community through this teaching series. So I'll give you some of the background and the context. In order to understand what's going on and the call that Jonah is receiving from the Lord here, let's back up to the founding of the nation of Israel. Founding of the nation of Israel. So just back up to the Exodus, right? So you remember the Exodus. Uh, these are approximate dates. I think these dates are fairly accurate, but you know they didn't put dates on these things, but you get a sense for it. Around the middle of the 15th century BC, very, very long time ago, God called Israel out of Egyptian captivity. So you remember the book of Exodus, hopefully. You remember the end of Genesis, right? When, when Jacob's family goes to Egypt and they find refuge there from a famine and there's a 400-year gap, 400-year silence of God and then the book of Exodus opens and God speaks to Moses and to his brother Aaron and, and tells them, go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. At this time, in the middle of the 15th century BC, Israel was a massive slave nation in Egypt and uh, the Egyptians were brutal with them and God remembered his people, he had mercy on his people and so he commands Moses and Aaron, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And you know some of the details of that story. We could get bogged down in that. But the book of Exodus uh, shows us that God leads them through the Red Sea. You remember the parting of the Red Sea into the Sinai Peninsula. He reveals his law to them. And their Israel is now in the wilderness for 40 years. They're disobedient to God. And so uh, what should be a short trip from Egypt back to the promised land ends up being a 40-year journey, a whole generation dies out. But around, uh, you, you see there, 40 years later, let's say around 1399, Israel then settles in to the promised land. And if you see uh, in the next slide, there should be a map, actually two slides from here, there, there'll be a map, and you'll see, oh, there's the wandering in the wilderness. And so uh, they go from, you see there, Egypt, the uh, land of Goshen, through the Red Sea, receive the law of Mount Sinai, and eventually, this, this is a 40-year journey, right? And it shouldn't have taken so long, and you, you see that. Well, then he leads them to settle the promised land. So let's go forward two more, and you'll see what the settling of the promised land looked like. Here's roughly what the map looks like. So there's these tribes of, uh, of Israel, and they're given different parcels of land, right? And so you see Jerusalem there in the center, not yet even the center of the nation of Israel. Um, not until King David will it really become the center of the nation of Israel, but there it is in the, within the tribe of Benjamin. And so this is about the end of the 14th century. Uh, you get the, the settling of the promised land. Well, this initiates the time of the judges. There are a number of leaders that help lead the nation, but there's no one single king, right? So about... 1043 BC, God establishes a kingdom because Israel 
wants to have a king like other nations have. They have these judges, but they don't have a central um, uh, figurehead of power. And so it's embarrassing for them, whereas other nations have all of this sort of pomp and this nobility. Israel has nothing like that. They have these judges that sort of come and go. So God gives them a king. At first, Saul, who turns out to be not a very good choice, but God's ultimate choice, of course, is King David, a man after his own heart, this very famous King David, who is a a, a man who loves God, but is also somewhat of a wayward person, right? And he sins against God. He's very imperfect. And his son, Solomon, is just like his father, a wise, noble, godly man, and also shockingly wayward. Uh, And so in the life of, if we go uh, forward, in the life of of Solomon, we see that Solomon very wisely, kind of weird, God asks him, what would you like me to give you, Solomon? The king of Israel, ask me, I'll give it to you. And you have to have some wisdom to request wisdom. He didn't request wealth and power and those sorts of things. He requested wisdom, which is a wise thing to require. You have to have some wisdom to, to ask for wisdom. And so you see Solomon's power amass, and you see his kingdom rise um, as he amasses power because of his wisdom, and it culminates in the building of the house of God, the house of Yahweh there in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem becomes the center of the worship of the true God in the earth with the building of the house of Yahweh or the temple there in Jerusalem. But at the height of his power, power corrupts, right? And so at the height of his power, for political reasons and perhaps just because of his own ego, he started to marry foreign princesses and start to amass treaties with other nations. And he had multiple wives and they worshiped other gods and so he included the worship of their gods into Israelite practice, which was an amazingly foolish thing for a guy who has divine wisdom. So these are very mixed characters. And what happens with that, his, his kingdom begins to decline and at the end of the kingdom, Uh, of Solomon's reign, his kingdom is in fact totally fractured. And so the united kingdom at the end of Solomon's reign comes to an end. And then we come to a time in Israelite history in which the single kingdom now divides into two kingdoms. A northern kingdom, north of Israel, uh, which if we look at the next slide, the northern kingdom, uh, is all of those tribes north of Israel centered in a place called Samaria, that's where we get the name Samaritan eventually. And the southern kingdom is just called Judah. That's where we get the word Jew from, or the name Jew from, Judah, right? And that's still centered in Jerusalem. So now there are two nations that worship the one true God, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And they have their own prophets, and they have their own histories, and they're rivals. They're like brothers, right? And you know what kind of rivalries brothers have. It's a love-hate relationship, and there's often a lot more hate than love. But there you go. Now they're two rival nations. So the northern kingdom has its own kings. The southern kingdom has its own kings. And so that should bring us, I think the next slide, that should bring us to king, uh, the, the, the northern kingdom. Here are some of the, the most famous kings. Uh, what the first king is, 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 um, uh, of the northern kingdom is, is Jeroboam. The 13th king is Jeroboam II, the 13th king. So this brings us to the late 8th 8th century BC, right? So in the late 8th century, Jeroboam the king is the king of the northern kingdom, and this is the time of the prophet Jonah. 
Jonah prophesied, uh, we see this in 2 Kings 14, Jonah went to Jeroboam II and prophesied that God would expand his kingdom. Apparently, Jeroboam II was a great political leader, very wise man, uh, or shrewd, I should say. Not, it didn't have godly wisdom, but he had a sort of political shrewdness. And he did, in fact, expand the kingdom. He went up and he conquered Damascus, you know, this great ancient city of great power. And so he really expanded Israel. And Jonah told him that he would. Jonah himself, as a northern prophet, was really invested in the culture and the political power of the northern kingdom. He was a person who apparently saw God's glory and the worship of the true God as tied into the success and prosperity of the northern kingdom. So he was a northern kingdom prophet and even political figure all the way. And so that was Jonah's interaction with Jeroboam. And we know from history, Jeroboam II was in fact a very prosperous king, an extremely prosperous king. He traded with Assyria, and Assyria is the major empire to the north just around the Fertile Crescent to the north and to the east of Israel. And it is the major empire in the ancient, ancient Near East now at, in, the, uh, in the 8th century BC. So Assyria has all of the power. Everyone's afraid of Assyria. You either have a treaty with Assyria and you trade with them and have peaceful relationships or you get conquered or maybe both, right? And so Israel is always in this in this space where um, they want to play nice with Assyria, they want to keep Assyria at bay, they're worried about Assyria, so Assyria is this major power. And Jeroboam II, he traded with Assyria, so we know this from history. This is not just uh, biblical history, but we know about the reign of Jeroboam II, they traded uh, olive oil and horses, and so it was a lively trade that they had, and so he expanded, he made it very prosperous, but apparently... Under Jeroboam II, Israel became not only a prosperous nation, but a very greedy nation, a nation of avarice. And in fact, we see that they oppressed the poor. And it was, it was a sort of brutal, sort of classicist stratification where the rich got richer and the poor got poorer and they were oppressed. And there was a sort of wealthy class that was interacting with nations like Assyria and developing great wealth and sort of focusing on national prosperity and economic expansion and the poor were left out. And so a southern prophet, Amos, a prophet from the south comes, and he tells Jeroboam II, we, see, we read this in Amos chapter 6, he comes to Jeroboam II and he says, all of the land that God gave you, that Jonah prophesied that you would receive, God is going to take it back. He's going to take all of it back because of your greed, because of your avarice, because of your oppression of the poor. And not only that, they worshiped the true God, but they did so in some very idolatrous ways. They set up golden calves, you know, gold, golden cow, right? A, a cow made of gold, and they bow down and worship the cow as if he was Yahweh, the true God. And they set up a, 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 an altar to a golden calf at Bethel. And so they worshiped at, at Bethel rather than at Jerusalem. So oppression, idolatry, um, although it was economically really a great time in Israel in the 8th century. It was religiously and culturally a horrific time. And so God expanded Israel, but there was this warning from Amos that God would take away. And so you've got Israel at that time and Assyria, who I mentioned. Assyria is the major empire. is the major empire in the region. Um, one of the first great world empires 
what is an empire as opposed to a kingdom? An empire is a collection of kingdoms, and an emperor rules over kings, right? And so the Assyrians were a kingdom that expanded by conquering other peoples and incorporating them into their empire, and an Assyrian king would rule over many subregions, many kings of other places. And so it was by nature a sort of consuming, growing sort of entity. That's the worry about empires as opposed to kingdoms. They want to include and conquer and, um, uh, and, and um, consume, uh, that's what I said, consume other kingdoms, right? And so that's the worry that Israel has at the time in the 8th century. Now, Syria is a major empire. Their capital was Nineveh, and that's where Jonah's being called to, right? So that's what we see in, in uh, verse 1. God calls Jonah to Nineveh. Nineveh is this ancient city. The name Nineveh, scholars think, means house or place of the fish. Nobody's exactly sure what that means or why it was called that, but it's on a river, and at one time it was one of the major cities in the world. It was, in fact, briefly the biggest city in the world, the center of world commerce and political power, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Right? Um, the Assyrian Empire established Aramaic as the language of the nation, the language of trade. So empires, remember they have multiple kingdoms inside one empire. The Assyrian Empire uh, had to have a single language of commerce. So they chose Aramaic as the sort of common language. That's why in the New Testament, we read the New Testament in Greek, but we know that Jesus' ministry, and especially with his uh, nearest disciples, he spoke Aramaic. So Aramaic became a sort of common language in the ancient Near East, and it was the language that Jesus spoke. It's a sister language to Hebrew. So they speak, spoke Hebrew, but commonly from day to day uh, with friends and things, and you go out for coffee, you're speaking Aramaic, right? And it became Aramaic because of the Assyrian Empire and their influence on Israel. Uh, the city of Nineveh is um, at the site of present-day Mosul, so you know about Mosul, Iraq, right? We know about uh, now some things here in the second decade of the 21st century. Since the first decade, we in the West have come to know um, the places and the peoples of that area more than perhaps we knew before because of the wars. And uh, we know something about Iraq. You know about Mosul, Iraq. It's a place of, of recent warfare, right? And so uh, Mosul, Iraq is built on top of ancient Nineveh. In 2014 and 2015, ISIS had control of Mosul. And you probably remember that. And so it was archaeologically and culturally, it was a tragedy that ISIS had control of Mosul because they are, um, as you know, a kind of Islamic fundamentalist. And they're anti culture building, anti historical. Um, they don't care about wisdom. They only care about the absolute sort of uh, uh, establishment of Islamic fundamentalism. And so anything that they saw as un-Islamic, they just blew it up. They, they had one response. They didn't think about it. They didn't debate. They didn't have discussions. They didn't seek any nuance. They just blew it up. And so there was a mosque in Mosul called the Mosque of Jonah. It was built on top of the ruins of an ancient church, which was called the Church of Jonah. Jonah didn't establish the church. It was a church established in Jonah's name in the Christian era. In the Islamic era, they put a mosque on top. Well, that style of mosque wasn't ISIS's 
brand of Islam. So they blew it up. They said it was un-Islamic, which was a terrible, tragic cultural loss that they, that they blew up that mosque. Well, it turns out that when they blew it up, they found a tunnel underneath the mosque and church of Jonah that went down into the ancient Assyrian palace that had never been excavated because this monument had been built on top of it. Archaeologists couldn't get down into it. They blew it up, they found tunnels, and they found in 2014 and 2015 new Assyrian artifacts from the Assyrian um, um, palace at Nineveh that had never been found. So incredible artifacts around 2015, 2015 start showing up on the black market all Assyrian artifacts. And so uh, Assyriologists have actually learned a little bit more about Assyria uh, because of that. But a lot of the artifacts were damaged. I mean, they just went down there and they ripped things out and they just, and they blew up things and destroyed things and defaced things and vandalized things because, you know, they, you know that's just what they do. They're, they're not careful or anything like that. And they used some of the artifacts to actually fund their terrorist activities. When the archaeologists finally got down there, of course, um, ISIS was driven out of Mosul. When the archaeologists actually got down there, they still found some things. Anything that was movable was stolen and taken, and some of it's been lost or perhaps destroyed. Some of it was sold, so who exactly knows? But there were still reliefs in the wall, so there was a lot of information about Assyria they could still, they could still learn. They actually saw the knuckle tracks of the ISIS uh, terrorists because they, they dragged their knuckles when they... Okay, so they're, they're knuckle draggers, but I'm just kidding about that. So there's Nineveh. All right. So we know about Israel. We know about Assyria. God calls Jonah to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. So next slide. God commands Jonah to preach judgment against Nineveh. So again, maybe you know this story. That's what we read in verses 1 and 2. God commands Jonah to preach. And immediately, you'll see that he leaves his hometown in Israel. The next slide, you'll see he leaves his hometown uh, there in, in Israel. And he goes down to Joppa, to Joppa, which is in Judah. It's actually in um, Philistine territory. Okay? So at this time, the Philistines had been subjugated by Judah in the south. So it's actually a Philistine town. And he gets on a boat for Tarshish. So remember, I told you <clears throat> on this map, we don't see it, but you'd have to go north and east to get into the Assyrian mainland. He gets on a boat and he goes west. Now I want you to pay attention there. You see Phoenicia there in the top. You've probably heard of the nation of Phoenicia. It's a hugely important nation and that has to do with Tarshish. The Phoenicians were the greatest trading nation of the ancient Near East. They colonized much of the Mediterranean. They colonized North Africa. The famous town and eventually city Carthage was established by the Phoenicians. They had colonies all the way to Sicily and across to Hispania, or what we would now call Spain, Iberia. They colonized the whole Mediterranean Rim. They were the world's greatest traders. They weren't really a military power, but they were a great financial power. So again, we're in the 8th century. Let's just, I just want to fast forward, and hopefully you can follow along with this, just to give some historical context, just sort of fast forward through some moments in history to sort of um, give the whole context so that we can understand the Bible and, and even world history a little bit better. We're in the 8th century BC, and the Neo-Assyrian Empire is the great empire in the world, right? Centered in Babylon, or sorry, in, in, in Nineveh, okay? That's the 8th century. 
In the seventh century, that's a century later, the Assyrians will be conquered by the Babylonians or the Neo-Babylonians. You know King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Uh, so, so we know that name. So the Neo-Babylonians, a century uh, later, um, they will conquer the Assyrians and they will also conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. They'll destroy um, uh, the city of Jerusalem. That leads to the Babylonian captivity and you know the Jews are deported to Babylon and Queen Esther and all of that history. We know about that, right? Well, in the 6th century BC, so a century after that, the Persians conquer the Babylonians. So Assyrians, then Babylonians, then Persians, and Cyrus the Great, the great founding king of the Persian Empire, releases the Jews, Ezra and Nehemiah, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild and reestablish the worship of Yahweh there in Jerusalem. And that brings us to the end of the Old Testament, right? So 8th century, 7th century, 6th century, Old Testament comes to an end. Right? In the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, okay, in the 4th century, we see the rise of a new empire under Alexander the Great. This Macedonian Greek empire conquers all of Persia. Every time the empires get bigger and bigger and bigger, they're consuming one another. So you've got the Assyrian Empire, and then the Babylonian Empire in the 7th century is a bit bigger, then the Persian Empire in the 6th century is even a bit bigger, and then the Macedonian Greek Empire in the 4th century is the biggest of all. It's enormous. It goes all the way from Greece to India. It's an enormous uh, empire. And that's the reason why the New Testament's written in Greek, because of Alexander's conquest. So um, we have Aramaic in Jesus' life because of the Assyrians, uh, establishing Aramaic as a common language. Later on, the Greeks establish Greek as a common language. And so that's what happens in the 4th century. Well, Alexander dies very young, as, as you might know, so that's the 4th century BC, and that fractures his massive Greek kingdom into pieces, and the, and the four pieces of his fractured kingdom sort of jockey for power for a couple centuries. And then we see in the 2nd century BC, skipping ahead, a fight for power between two rising nations in the Mediterranean. Rome on the northern rim of the Mediterranean and Carthage on the southern rim of the, of the Mediterranean. And Carthage is a Phoenician city. Phoenicia, the homeland, has now been lost. The cities of Tyre and Sidon, the homeland of the Phoenicians have been lost and they're now centered in North Africa, in Carthage. And so the second century BC, the Romans and the Carthaginians are struggling for power in the Mediterranean. And you might remember this maybe from high school um, history, you remember Hannibal, the great um, general of the Carthaginians, they were mainly just merchants and traders. They weren't really a political military power, but they had this incredible military genius rise up from their culture. Nobody exactly, exactly knows how or why that happens, but Hannibal has this incredible military genius. And remember, he takes Numidian cavalry and Spanish um, um, archers, and, uh, and he amasses a whole army. He goes around um, through Spain, up into the Alps with elephants. You remember that? He takes elephants through the Alps and comes down into Italy with elephants and terrorizes Italy with an elephant army. Okay, it was, a, it was actually a really bad decision in hindsight. The elephants didn't work. But it was a, an amazing thing that he went through the Alps with elephants. And, and this moment in the second century, it could go either way. Either Rome could rule the world or Carthage could rule the world. And Hannibal's army ended up being really devastated. They absolutely decimated the Roman armies. They just ran roughshod over Italy and nobody could stop them, but he decided not to attack Rome because his army was just too wounded, too beaten up. He himself was injured badly, and so he decided not to attack Rome. Well, that was a bad decision for Carthage because eventually Rome would regroup, they would 
uh, conquer Carthage. And that brings us to the New Testament when Jesus is born under Augustus Caesar and Roman authority, right? So, Assyrians 8th century, Babylonians 7th, Persians 6th, Greeks 4th, and then 1st century AD, we get to the Romans. And so the Phoenicians play a very important role. And I tell you all of that because the city of Tarshish, where Jonah was trying to go, was a Phoenician city. It was the farthest place away from Nineveh that he could possibly go. Tarshish was probably a city near silver mines in southern Spain. Southern Spain was very well known for having silver mines and was a great place of silver wealth. We know that Solomon cooperated with the Phoenicians. The great king Solomon, he cooperated with the Phoenicians to get silver from Spain. And so that contributed to Solomon's wealth. Remember, he was amassing power because of his wisdom. So he traded with the Phoenicians and traded all the way to Tarshish and got silver from Spain. In 2013, a storehouse of, uh, of silver from Tarshish was discovered in um, Israel-Lebanon area. And so that was actually material confirmation of Solomon's trade, uh, trade with Tarshish. So you think about the ancient... Uh, Mediterranean, ancient Near Eastern view of the world, how far can you go if you want to get away from the power in the east? How far west can you go? You can go to the Straits of Gibraltar. You can go to Tarshish. And then beyond that, there's nothing, right? They don't know about any North or South America. It's just no man's land. So God tells Jonah, I want you to go a little bit east, north into the east, to Nineveh, and he gets on a boat to go as far away as he possibly can. Tarshish is the edge of the world. It would be like God calling you to go to Portland and you get on the next flight to Tokyo, right? That's what, that's what Jonah's doing. So he's emphatically thumbing his nose at God. He's emphatically thumbing his nose at God, right? So uh, we read that in the first and second chapters. So one more slide. In the second chapter, we see that... Um, that God threatens the crew in the ship with a storm, with this massive storm, to destroy uh, the ship and all the people on it. And Jonah's on this ship with these pagan sailors. They don't know the true God. He's the only Hebrew on the ship. And so they're crying out to their gods, and they say, let's cast lots, and we're fi- we'll f- let's figure out whose fault this is. And so they cast lots, and they figure out it's Jonah's fault. And Jonah's asleep underneath the deck. He doesn't even care. And so they go and get Jonah, and they say, why is this happening to us? And he tells them, well, okay, I worship the, the, uh, the God who created the lands and the seas. I worship Yahweh. He's the true God. He created everything. And because of me, because I'm running from him, this is why this is happening. <laughs> and they actually believe him. They fear Yahweh. And they say, tell us what to do because we're going to die. And what's Jonah's response? Just throw me overboard. Throw me overboard. So by getting on the ship to Tarshish, you, he, he couldn't thumb his nose at God any harder. You want me to go to Nineveh? Guess what? I'm going to Tarshish. We're not even going to have a discussion. He couldn't thumb his nose any harder. At this point, he said, just kill me. Just kill me. I would rather die than go to Nineveh. God is commanding me to go to Nineveh. So he thumbed his nose getting on the ship. He's using a different finger now with God. Uh, he's being emphatic. This isn't a noble act by Jonah. He's not doing something heroic to save the crew. He hates God's plan so much because he's afraid of what God will do that he would rather die in the sea. So 
they throw them in. And they pray, and they say, oh, please, Yahweh, God of the Hebrews, please don't hold this sin against us. We're throwing him in the sea. And they actually heed God, and there Jonah goes sinking into the depths. So you know what happens next very famously. God uses a fish to swallow Jonah and carry him back to the shore. And so that's what we read about in the second chapter. Inside the belly of the fish, Jonah lives and he prays to God. Now, often people wonder about this. How on earth could Jonah survive in the fish? I mean, is there oxygen? I don't think there's much oxygen inside a fish. He's under the water. And wouldn't he be being digested by the fish? And what kind of fish is big enough? Sometimes people do this. This has happened before. People have tried to find uh, actual cases in which um, people have fallen into the sea and been... um, it's, it's actually happened. People have been swallowed by a giant fish or something, and they actually survived the incident, maybe just barely. Uh, nothing really like Jonah, as far as I know, spending three uh, days and nights inside a fish, but, but maybe something like that, okay? And they say, well, you see, it's physically possible. Well, here's the thing. Who cares whether it's physically or biologically possible? <laughs> it's a miracle, right? So we don't need any sort of comparable kind of story. People wonder, well, how is that possible? Easy answer. It was a miracle of God. No, it doesn't normally happen. No, that shouldn't happen. (laughs) Of course, that's not physically or biologically possible. But God preserves his life inside the fish and returns him to shore, and the fish spits him up back on shore. And so, of course, Jonah finally does concede, and he goes to Nineveh. But he's still pretty begrudging. At this point, Jonah seems very prideful, very arrogant, very rebellious, but nonetheless, he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches a five-word sermon. Five-word sermon. In Hebrew, it's only five words. He says, 40 days in Nineveh will be overturned. And that's all he does. He doesn't give any context. He doesn't give any further explanation. He doesn't plead with them. He doesn't try to teach them righteousness. He doesn't try to point out their sins and the pain and the hurt that it causes. Assyria was a very vile, abusive, wayward, inhumane society absolutely inhumane. Assyrian armies were so brutal. They were murderers. They were the worst. They were worse than knuckle-draggers. Worse than ISIS. Jonah gives them no context, no explanation. Forty days and Nineveh will be overturned. God is going to destroy Nineveh. And to Jonah's dismay, they believe him. He doesn't want them to believe him. He wants them to go on being Assyrians sit outside and watch God send down fire from heaven and destroy Nineveh. And what happens is they repent. It's shocking that they repent. He can't believe it. He gave the minimal effort, and they repented. Now, we don't exactly know who the Assyrian king was at the time because the book of Jonah doesn't tell us exactly which king it was. It says the king of Nineveh, right? So we don't know exactly which king it was. The time frame would match Adad Nirari III. There's a couple candidates for who the king might have been. Again, the time frame would fit this guy, Adad Narari III. I don't have his name up here, but if you want to put it in your notes, here's how you spell it. Adad is A-D-A-D dash Narari, N-I-R-A-R-I, N-I-R-A-R-I, Adad Narari III. That was his name. He probably ruled around that time frame. He, he would have you know, lived in the right time. Okay? When, he, um, when he was coronated... Adad Narari III, he actually stood up, he took his crown, and he said to the people, I am Adad Narari, there's never been anyone like me. And the Assyrians were like, 
dude, there's already been two Adnararis. And he's like, what? How? Two? <laughs> so he's the third. Somebody named Adnarari says, oh, I'm going to give that name to my son. That's a really bad name. That's a terrible name. You should call him something else. Adnarari III. We don't know much about his reign, okay? But he was a powerful Assyrian king. He would have lived in the right time frame. Not too much has been written on this as far as I could tell. I tried to do a little bit of research on this, and I'm not an Assyriologist or an ancient Near East expert or anything like that, but it seems like under Adnarari III, something very interesting happened. At one point, and again, not too much is said about this, but we do, do know this, he declared among all of the Assyrian gods, only one god is the true god and should be worshipped, the god Nebo. The god Nebo is the god of literacy and prophecy. It's very interesting that a prophet comes to Nineveh, tells them 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned, and they are in some place where they are actually able to believe him. And they identify with the god of prophecy the Assyrian god of prophecy, and they have this moment of ethical, moral reform and monotheism. It was very interesting. It's only a brief moment in Assyrian history where the Assyrian king says only one god should be worshipped. That might fit with Jonah's visit. Now, nobody's, in fact, absolutely sure about this. It's interesting. It might, we, I might be making all the wrong connections, but that's possible. Something very interesting apparently happened actually in Assyrian history. And so... The Assyrians repent, and how does Jonah respond? He's so upset. He's so mad. He demands that God let him die. He would rather die. Why is that? Why does he not care about the Assyrians? Because his religious life is tied up in national Israel and its economic and military prosperity, right? He's a nationalist all the way. Sure, he worships the true God. Sure, he's a prophet of the true God. Uh, He's not a very kind man. He certainly doesn't care about the Assyrians, But the Assyrians are horrific, and he wants judgment on the Assyrians, right? And he sees, and we see in the book of Jonah, that God's mercy is for all people, even Assyrians, even Assyrians, God's mercy. I mean, this is unheard of. This is shocking, that God's mercy is for all people. God would even be merciful with Assyrians. Who is this God? Gods don't do this. The national God of Israel, who should be expanding Israel and establishing Israel's power in the earth? He's actually having mercy on the Assyrians. They didn't even fully repent. They never even came to worship the true God. They mistakenly worshipped Nebo. At least they became monotheists briefly. They made some moral reforms, but it's not like they turned to the true God and converted to Judaism or something like that. They're still wrong. And surprisingly, God has mercy on them. We see in the book of Jonah that God's mercy involves patience, which is so annoying to Jonah, and it involves sacrifice, which is totally unacceptable to Jonah. It involves patience and sacrifice. And we see that briefly, the Assyrians repented. Israel continued down the same road of avarice and claiming God with their lips, but denying, them, denying him with their lives, and guess what happens? By the end of the 8th century, the Assyrians finally do come and they destroy Israel and they deport the population. God's mercy on Assyria led to the destruction of Israel. Jonah knew that was going to come. He knew that God was going to do that. And so he tells God in chapter 4, this is exactly why I didn't want to come to Nineveh, because I knew you were merciful. I knew you would do this. And he takes 
God's mercy as betrayal to national Israel. And so Jonah sits out this, outside the city and just hopes to die. And the book of Jonah ends this way. This is the last line of the book of Jonah. God says this. Should not I pity Nineveh? That, I think, would be our last slide. Should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? (laughs) It's a lot of wayward people, 120,000 people, not to mention the cows. Should not I have mercy on Nineveh? So we might ask ourselves, we might think, put ourselves in Jonah's place. When we read a story like this, I don't know about you, my first impulse is to put myself in Israel's place and think, is God's mercy to our enemies acceptable to us or unacceptable to us? You know, sometimes we think in our more humble moments, I hope you think this way, we we think, you know what, sometimes I get things right, sometimes other people get things right, sometimes I'm not quite right and people might see things differently and I can learn and I can deepen my understanding and I can be corrected and I'm open to things like that. This is not one of those cases. This is a case where we're right and they're dead wrong. They're wrong all the way in every way and there's really no question about it. There really is no compromise on the, on the matter. Sometimes you're right and they're wrong. Will we accept that God will still have mercy? that God will still be patient, when they should be corrected, when they should be rebuked, perhaps even like ISIS, they should be destroyed, right? Is it acceptable to us that God would be merciful to them? Often it's not. We wonder where God is. It's not acceptable to us. But better than putting ourselves in the place of Israel, here's what we have to realize. We're not Israel. We're actually the Assyrians, I don't know if you know that. When we read this story, we think, oh, we're Israel. We put ourselves, the church, we put ourselves in. No, no, we're actually the Assyrians. We're the other nation. We're the wayward nation with our own values, with our own ways of seeing things. We want to figure out things for ourselves and the things that God thinks are inconsequential to us. Now, you might say, well, not in my life, of course. Now, we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we know Jesus Christ, but we have been given that same mercy that God prefigures in Nineveh that same patient mercy, we are the Assyrians who have heard the word and the preaching, the final Jonah. Unlike the original Jonah, who was a spiteful messenger of God's mercy, a begrudging messenger of God's mercy, a nationalist who wanted judgment on the world, Jesus Christ is the final Jonah, who is not spiteful, but an obedient and joyful messenger of God's mercy. In fact, he is the revelation and substance of God's mercy. He is the reversal. He's the anti-Jonah. And he comes into our world, our Assyrian world. And so understanding this message and the way that it ends, it's so shocking to Israel that God should show mercy to the Assyrians. This story makes almost no sense in the canon. You don't see any other uh, prophets doing this, going to another nation, expressing God's mercy. But we see this in the story of Jonah, and it prefigures the coming of Jesus Christ and his mission of mercy into our world, into our Nineveh, into our Babylon. And so understanding these stories, again, gives us context for understanding the whole of the gospel. That's what we're going to fellowship around for the next four weeks. Make sense? All right. Let me invite the worship team forward, and let's pray, and ask the Holy Spirit to to do those things in our lives. Father, we want to heed the message of Jonah. We want to understand it more deeply, receive deeper insights. 
deeper understanding for this one purpose, that we would see you more clearly, that we would understand you. You revealed your mercy to Jonah, and he was spiteful because of it. He hated your mercy, at least as we see chapter 4 of Jonah come to a close. He hated your mercy and would not accept it. But Lord, you filled us with a very different spirit. Teach us to rejoice in your mercy, being thankful for your mercy to us. Rejoice that your mercy should be shown to our enemies as well. That we shouldn't become spiteful because of it, but we should know, Lord Jesus, you are the final Jonah. You're the final prophet. Come into the world to show, deliver, and be the substance of God's mercy to us. Just as Jonah was swallowed by a fish, you were swallowed by death for three days and three nights. And just as Jonah was spit up on shore, so hell spit you out because it couldn't hold you. You've returned as the great and glorious, risen Lord of life. We trust in you. We want to know you and see you more clearly so that we could draw nearer to you, be filled more with you, become better worshipers, Lord, and that the world would hear our worship they see us believing the gospel, Lord, that they would believe as well. In Jesus' name.